everybody. Welcome back to the Grey Malkin Lane podcast, where queer friends and allies gather to review and discuss the original X-Men comics from the 1960s. Except when we take a series from 2008 that explores the origins of Mr. Warren Worthington III himself. Angel's going to be getting a lot of love on my show in this next couple of months as we delve into some of his early adventures and crazy tragedies. And today is kind of the start of that. In our last episode, we were thrilled to be joined by uh, Tom Brevoort, uh, Steve Fox, and Ariana Marr, and we got to talk about one of the Angel's early adventures alongside the Sentry. Do you guys remember that time Angel was tied up and he threw himself off of a tower and then landed on the bad guy to defeat him? Because that happened. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> go back and listen to that episode if you'd like more information. Uh, I'm your host, Chad Anderson. I use he, him pronouns. I am thrilled to be joined by two returning guests, uh, Andrew Drillin and Steens. And I'm so happy to have the incredible writer and artist, uh, Shelby Criswell, here with us today. Let me have you each introduce yourselves. Uh, Shelby, I'll have you go first. Let us know uh, your name, your gender pronouns, and uh, where we might know you from. And the question for everybody in intros, based on your book, uh, tell us the celebrity you were surprised to learn was on the LGBTQ spectrum after you came out. Uh, so we'll go in the order of Shelby, Steens, and then Andrew. Hi, um, I'm Shelby, use they, them pronouns. Uh, I am an illustrator and graphic designer in Texas, and you might know me from Queer as I'll Get Out, uh, my debut graphic novel, and I've also done art on Terminal Punks with my friend Matthew Ehrman, who is a badass, and I'm and, uh, a little bit of a spoiler, doing another book with right now. Um, okay, celeb, I just recently found out that Drew Barrymore is bisexual. And I was like, oh, that checks out. And I think that's great. That does make a lot of sense, actually. <laughs> yeah, I love her. She's adorable. And then let's go to Steens next. Hi, uh, my name is Steens. I'm a cartoonist and editor and professor in St. Louis. You may know me from the internet. Uh -huh. You may know me from the book Archival Quality or for the syndicated comic strip Heart of the City. Um, I also created the standard comic script template, so I am all in the comics universe. Um, I you may also that. you may also know Steens from her appear. Excuse me, from their appearance on my podcast. <laughs> yes, that's true. That's true. Yeah, I loved it so much. I was like, I will happily do this again. I'm so um, happy to hear that. So, uh, full transparency, <laughs> I didn't start looking for like a celebrity that surprised me until five minutes ago when I was on the toilet. And <laughs> according to Wikipedia, Matt Bomer is queer. <laughs> so there it is, surprise, surprise to me. <laughs> I was thinking like who actually did surprise me but it was before I came out but I'm still gonna use it anyway is Cal Penn. I was like totally like surprised about that um was because he was terrible in house just an absolute awful character to play but um but yeah that's that's what i got cal pan and, and matt bomer as of five minutes ago <laughs> last time scenes was on the show we delved a lot into sauron today it's angel i'll have you back every time we have a winged character as well hell yeah i'm in i'm in <laughs> but i'm so happy to have andrew back hi andrew uh, hi everyone, uh, my name is Andrew Drillon. Uh, I'm a cartoonist, uh, born and raised in the Philippines, currently based in New York. Um, I did the, um, uh, the National Book Award winning Kare Kare Comics uh, collection, 
And I won a Neil Gaiman Philippine Graphic Fiction Award uh, for my comic Lives in Spaces, which is a tribute to Alex Nino, one of my favorite um, creators ever. And I'm currently working on a graphic novel called Secret Heart Attack. It's actually um, being released as a limited series. First issue is already out. Came out last October on my website. It's available online and also at Anyone Comics and uh, several other places in New York City. Um, creator, I am... Oh, oh, and I have a DC comic coming out <laughs> in February. So I'm super excited. That's like my first pro gig, so... I was going to say it if you didn't. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's a, it's it's a whoops, shut up Siri. Um, <laughs> it's a uh, it's a Shazam comic coming out late February. It's going to be a tie into the upcoming Shazam movie. Um, and as for creators that uh, uh, celebrities that I'm surprised are in the LGBTQ um, uh, community, uh, it's, it's just X Men writers. <laughs> Uh, so uh, the number one would be my favorite writer ever, Grant Morrison. I didn't realize that um, uh, he was a they/them, um, and, and and identified as non-binary. This was uh, fairly recent, like in the last few years, and it was a big shock to me. But also, if you read their work, um, they are—it just completely makes sense. If you read Invisibles and you see all the themes they're tackling, it just like shows in the work. Um, also, writers like Karen Gillan and Al Ewing are also. Um, part of um, the LGBTQ community, apparently. So, you know, those were like my big surprises. And it's lovely because when you find out about that and you read their work and you see the themes that they're tackling, it's just like, it makes complete sense. Wonderful. It's so good to have you back. Andrew was on the show previously. We got to talk about lots of time travel craziness. <laughs> I'm so happy you're here again, my friend. <laughs> uh, and then I'm, I'm thrilled to be welcomed as well by Rohan Shuli. Hi, Rohan. Hi, good to see you. Uh, tell us uh, tell us your name, your gender pronouns, uh, where we might know you from, and then do you have a celebrity you were surprised to find out was gay? Or on the spectrum? I keep saying gay like it means all the things. LGBTQ. Um, sure. <laughs> uh, my name is Rohan Joli. My pronouns are they, them, shot, and da. Um, you can definitely, I guess I'm best known for more of my community organizing. Um, my organization is called the Blasian March. We are a Black Asian solidarity um, initiative, and we build solidarity through one education on parallel experiences with um, colonial state violence, as well as two, Misha celebration. Um, celebrities, I didn't know we're queer on a spectrum. You know, I don't really have an answer for that. <laughs> I feel like these days, I just assume that everyone's gay until proven straight. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> I just don't, I'm like, sure, you're one of us. Um, yeah, I guess I have no answer for that. Certainly in the X-Men world, that is, uh, that's at least the case. They're all very queer. Anyone who puts uh, tights on and their underwear on outside, I think we can automatically make that assumption. Uh, lastly, as I said before, I'm Chad Anderson. Uh, when I grew up, I grew up in a very religious kind of cultural environment. We're certainly going to talk a little bit about religion today. We'll talk more about uh, the parameters around that a little later. But uh, religion for me was my whole community. And after coming out, uh, I kind of lost that community. And it was really important for me to find new community. Uh, something I did initially was really throw myself into understanding my queer community, my queer history, where people come from. Uh, and this is a trait that I think Shelby and I have in common, which is one of the reasons I'm so excited to talk to Shelby uh, today. But uh, one of the big surprises, I grew up watching Nick at Night 
in the 90s, which is old reruns that would play uh, on repeat. So I love Lucy and the Dick Van Dyke show and Mary Tyler Moore and all of those. And when I started looking into the actors and producers on those shows, I realized so many of those people were gay, uh, including the dad in the Brady Bunch, which was a big surprise. I was like, oh, geez. <laughs> so it, it, was, it was kind of a weird moment of realizing there were queer people all around me when I was growing up, but I had no idea that they were queer. Uh, and then it delved into a lot of uh, research and kind of finding my place in my community after that. So I want to start off today by uh, talking to Shelby. Shelby has written an incredible graphic novel, written and drawn, uh, called Queer as All Get Out, 10 People Who Have Inspired Me. Uh, it is a beautiful kind of day in the life as Shelby's making their way through their city and kind of stopping to reflect on the people who've come before them and what they mean to them and how they've learned about them. It's a beautiful book. I read it twice. I shared it with my kids. Uh, it's really, really good. Uh, Shelby, can we start just by hearing a little bit about you and your story and uh, how this book came to be? Yeah. Um, so I didn't intend to write a memoir. Uh, that was my publisher's idea. <laughs> uh, I kind of just wanted to write about queer people and, you know, share that, like, we've always been here, which is very inspiring. Like, when I was looking up queer history, I was like, oh, like, I found, like, documents of, of an intersex child in, like, the 1300s, which, like, how do we still have documentation of that? That's incredible. Um, and, like, just I just ran down this, like, big rabbit hole of finding people that were queer in some way and I just wanted other people to know about that and then um I originally had another offer for a publisher to take on this book but I wasn't super happy with how they were going to handle the book and so the publisher that it did end up with um Liz Francis at Street Noise Books uh yeah no Liz Liz sounded like a friend basically off the bat I was I was very happy with chatting with her um so, and so Street Noise Books typically publishes books that are memoir. And so she was just like, why don't you put your story in between all these others? And I was like, oh, I didn't even consider that because, <laughs> you know, I didn't want to, I didn't want to think about my life, but I'm happy that I did. And a lot of people have seemed to get really, you know, great positive things out of it. There's a lot of ways to do storytelling. A couple of years ago, I made a documentary called uh, Dog Valley with Avalanche Studios about a young gay man who was really horribly killed. And as we were trying to figure out how to tell the story under certain parameters, there was a particular choice to put me in front of the camera and make me part of the film instead of just behind the camera. So I'm kind of the through line. It's my journey discovering this. And as I read your book, it brought back a lot of those types of memories. It's a really good storytelling style as you so clearly as the narrator of this book, uh, kind of guide us through what it's like to be a queer person and, and delve into queer history. How did you choose the individuals that you wanted to feature in your book? So I originally, the first two people who were on the cover, um, Sister Rosetta Tharp and Magnus Hirschfeld, uh, I had heard about them first uh, when, I was just, when I was just researching. And I thought they were the most inspiring, you know, Magnus Hirschfeld. Basically, a lot of the queer history documentation that we have now is because of him. And unfortunately, the Nazis destroyed a lot of it. And then Sister Rosetta Tharp, I've always been into music, big music kind of person. And so like knowing the uh, roots of rock and roll music are, are it's all black people is, is really cool. And then Sister Rosetta Tharp also is queer, even cooler. Um, so I just was like, 
people have to know about this. I don't think people know about this. Let's start with uh, Sister Rosetta Tharp. Tell us about uh, Rosetta. What an amazing, amazing person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she, um, I'm having, having to like jog my memory. Uh, she, yeah, basically is the godfa- godmother of rock and roll. Um, basically one of the first people to, or if not the first person to play like, yeah, an electric guitar in the style that like, you know, we all hear and know as like rock and roll. And she did a lot of gospel music and she wasn't well received with the gospel crowd, wasn't well received with um, the like the the secular uh, white crowd because she was black and she um she was a bisexual woman and she kept that that quiet all her life but all of her friends and her family knew um but none of them said anything it came out in a book recently written about her that they all knew um but it didn't seem to interfere with her with her work as a musician in the in gospel we're, we're again we're going to talk about church stuff later when i was reading about rosetta tharp i uh i read a book on ethel waters a few years back and her story kind of was reminiscent of ethel waters a little bit you have these names that made it pretty big but they had to keep their queer lifestyles very very quiet and especially in a gospel environment where you are told not to uh be a particular way or you will receive a particular punishment uh, <laughs> again we'll talk about angels later when it comes to the church stuff but what an inspiring, uh, what an inspiring figure. Um, I want to ask about two more, and then I want to kind of turn it over to the panel. We can talk about different uh, queer people who have inspired us along the way as well. Uh, tell us about Carlette Brown. This was another, I had never heard this name before opening your book. Yeah. Um, yeah. So Carlette was an intersex woman. Um, a lot of people, I talk about her in the book. I'm trying to remember. Um Christine Jorgensen is the um, woman that inspired Carlette to transition to become a woman. And Christine Jorgensen was a um, ex-military person who was sort of like sensationalized in the media for becoming a woman. If I could interject, Christine Jorgensen went to Europe and got sex reassignment surgery and then came back. And I, I kind of assume she called her own press conference. There's this famous video of her, like, she's like all dressed in like fur and like looking gorgeous. And she gets off the plane and she's like, oh, all these cameras are here. I didn't even know. And here yeah. I am, a woman. I guess you'll have to put me in the papers now. But, this yeah. a, but her, her story in the papers was like the first time a lot of people had ever heard about gender reassignment surgery. Yeah, they were like, what the hell is this? <laughs> yeah, and, so, and, and then that's how Carlette was like, oh, you can do that. And so Carlette, you know, went on this journey to to be able to to do that. And we don't know if she ever did. There's not documentation if she made it to Europe, but she was in contact with the same uh, surgeon as Carlette. It's a it's a powerful, powerful story. When you consider people who lived very quiet lives that had a lot of oppression, but they are remembered as heroes because they were trendsetters. They were pioneers. They're people who are so powerful. Let me ask about one more, and then I have some questions for the panel about these types of topics. Uh, let's hear about Mary Jones a little bit. This was another person I had never heard of before uh, opening your book, and this might have been my favorite vignette in your in your book. I was so, so inspired by this story. Thank you. Uh, yeah, Mary Jones, there is only one picture of her, unfortunately, and it's a drawing that was a very 
awful drawing where they call her a man monster. She was a trans woman and a sex worker um, who a lot in a lot of her details of her life life are lost, but she worked as a sex worker in uh, Louisiana and she lived her life as a proud trans woman and didn't didn't give a shit. Um, a, a black trans woman as well. Uh, so, you know, she probably got a lot of harassment just for being, looking the way she did. She would wear dresses on the street and wouldn't care. And she ended up going to prison because she got into an altercation with a police officer who was trying to um, solicit her for sex work. And then they found all these wallets she had stolen from doing sex work, which like, I don't know, she was a hustler. She was awesome. <laughs> Uh, these stories, um, I, I mean, just focusing on this, so many American cities, Salt Lake City included, in these days had brothels where men, because, you know, misogyny would go to find women to do things with in private. And a lot of these places had workers that they would keep that were trans or or gender non-conforming, uh, non-conforming where, where you would have uh, men who were looking for a particular type of tryst who would go <laughs> and uh, and seek these places out so that they could have these private lives be private. And the stories of these individuals, Mary Jones being one of them, I think are super powerful and super inspiring. Uh, now I can go on and on. Before I keep going, let me uh, let me turn this over to the panel a little bit. Uh, what are your thoughts and questions as we as we talk through these names so far? I know for for me, I, I feel like I tell this to to everybody, um, but this book helped me figure out my own gender for sure. Um, mostly because like, I don't really care for history, <laughs> especially the history of my people because it is incredibly triggering. So I tend to stay away from it. You know, I don't look like at like slave movies or, you know, civil rights movies. It's like, I've seen enough, I've read enough. I no longer need this. Um, let me step away from it. And so it was kind of nice to, to read Shelby's book and be um, kind of surprise attacked with my I, my own history, you know? Cause like if I had known that the amount of um, queer people that you discuss were people of color, there's a possibility I would have been like, I don't wanna read this. <laughs> Mostly because usually when you think about, you know, queer uh, people of color, um, their history, it's always negative. And I don't wanna read that. And so it was really cool to like read your book and be like, this is all great and positive and finally something that I needed to see, you know? So it was very cool. It was a very cool book for that reason. Yeah, no, I, I definitely was like, we need a wide spectrum of people. Cause I was like, a lot of like queer history, people always say the same like few names and they're always like white men and I'm like, Okay, we know. So yeah. I was like, yeah, we need intersex people. We need, you know, people of color. We need this and that. And, you know, people in, in other countries too. It's also really important to me to have like, oh, you know, make sure almost everybody is represented. Yeah, it's it's very, very good. And I, I like that um, it's not totally obvious from the cover or from the blurb on the back that that's what you're going to be getting into. So you're like forcing it down people's throats. And that's exactly what I want. You know, it's like you need to see this kind of history, um, even if it is kind of scary to look back. I have a question, actually, for Shelby. Um, this book seems like something that is really 
like research intensive, like requires just so much work on that front. How was that? Because, you know, um, I mean, in my experience, when you write about people like this, especially, um, you know, queer people who have historically been silenced and, you know, there's been an issue with like getting records for a lot of these things. Um, was it super difficult? Like what challenges did you go through in making this book, at least from the research aspect? Uh, I'm always grateful when people are like, oh, it's well-researched, which that makes me very happy because it was a lot of work. Um, I mean, researching just like one person already sucks, but doing it for like 10 people and then doing it for like all these little nuances, like what does New York in 1800s look like? What is, um, you know, I don't know, just like these little things like the background and stuff. You have to look up so many things. And I was on a podcast with some librarians last week and they were nerding out. They were like, this bibliography is great. And I was like, this is only 10% of it. Because <laughs> like when we were making the book, the editors were like, um, we love that you did your research. That's fantastic. But we can't put 15 pages of a bibliography. Nobody's going to care. <laughs> so I always say like, if you want more information, I have the whole document of all the all of the research stuff. <laughs> Was there, was there anyone that you had to cut out because you couldn't get enough research on them? Or, you know what I mean? Like, was there anyone that was too blurry when you looked into the lens of the past um, that, you know, we just couldn't make enough out of it? Or someone who just fell off the list because of that? Uh, there was specifically somebody, but there, I mean, like, even with, like, Mary Jones, there's, like, not much known about her. So I kind of had to just, like, pull from where I could. And, like, that's why I end up talking about, like, the brick wall in genealogy with with black people because you know a lot of their history is stolen and uncovered up because they came over here as slaves and so like that just seems like a nice way to tie in that because i didn't have enough information about mary um yeah that's so interesting that you talk about you know all the research that goes into it that's not just about the characters because i'm in the middle of that myself with side quest the uh, graphic novel history of tabletop role-playing games and because we go so far back in time, my references are paintings. My references are, you know, ceramic jugs. <laughs> so it's, it's definitely a, a struggle really to find that visual history in addition to the written history. I wanna read two pages out of Shelby's book. Now, this is all interspersed over Shelby's incredible art. Uh, you have this lovely cartoony style. Everybody's just got dot eyes. And the, the figures are kind of simple, but there is so much heart in the way you draw. I found myself kind of getting lost in your images multiple times and almost thinking like, what is it about this art style that is so magical? But I really love it. I really love it. I was sharing again with my kids. My youngest is uh, is non-binary and, uh, and an artist. And they were like, oh, this gives me ideas for ways that I can draw. Uh, so this is from the section on uh, Magnus Hirschfeld. And for, for listeners, uh, go out and get this book and just look, listen to the amount of queer history. And then I want to talk to the panel just about your emotional response to just this little snippet from uh, Shelby's book. Magnus Hirschfeld was born into a conservative Ashkenazi Jewish family in Kohlberg, Russia in 1868. His father was a well-respected physician. His public health efforts were highly esteemed in Kohlberg. As a boy, Magnus was fascinated by human sexuality and other boys. He was particularly interested in the fact that two people of the same sex could be in love with each other. In 1888, he followed in his father and both of his brother's footsteps by becoming a medical student at the University of Strasbourg. 
But while in school, Magnus was traumatized by a lecture on sexual degeneracy. His professor told told a story of a gay man who was incarcerated in an asylum for 30 years for his sexual preference. Then he brought the man from the story out in front of the class fully nude and paraded him around like a lab rat. As the room filled with laughter, Magnus was revolted. He seemed to be the only one of his classmates that saw this as an unfair treatment. Perhaps the guilt he felt for not only opening, excuse me, for not openly objecting to what happened in class pushed him to embrace and learn everything he could on homosexuality. That's two quick pages of content with incredible heartfelt images. Uh, Shelby, let me hear your response to, uh, to that part first, and let me turn it over to the panel. What are your thoughts on hearing just that much of this man's story? I think this is the first time anybody's ever just read my comic to me, <laughs> and I don't see the images, and it sounds like a textbook. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, um, that story was really important for me to put in because, you know, a lot of, a lot of queer people are are even now are made to be made to be the fool or you know sort of paraded around like even in like even in my family it's just kind of like a joke that I'm that I have a roommate quote unquote you know what I mean so I that I mean it just it felt important to put that that always kind of has happened I mean which we all know but it seems kind of you know, it's really like in your face. Can you imagine being in a classroom? Like, I would be like, oh, this is, this is awful. Yeah, I, I like that that part is in there just because it's so real, you know? Like, it's one thing to be physically, literally paraded around naked. <laughs> it's another to have it done in um in a more subtle way. And it's a, a good way for us to see that this sort of thing does still happen, but it's just evolved into a new form of parading, a new form of ridicule. And oftentimes it's in the worst places possible, like a, a place of education, you know, like why would that be the place where you see this sort of negativity? So, yeah. And I, I, I mean, I think that's the sort of thing that we're, we're still seeing with like, you know, allowing trans kids to play in sports and um, having to go through these horrible, like, and really invasive, um, I won't even say procedures, because it's really not even that. It's just, you know, poking around someone's body and being like, what are you? Why are you like this? Let me ask this question to a quorum of 500, you know, it's, it's unreal. And it's good to see that that sort of thing isn't something that came out of how we behave now, but it's just always been there. And so when you read this sort of thing, you have to kind of tell yourself, how can we keep from going even further back to doing that again, you know? That's a beautiful point, Steens. Um, yeah, it got me thinking because, you know, coming from, from my background from the Philippines, I grew up in a very Catholic context. Uh, I went to a Jesuit school and, um, you know, the, the passage really strikes me, uh, accord with me because uh, it's just kind of the feeling of like receiving something in a very different way from your peers, from everyone around you. You know, as human beings, I think we just have a like a deep-seated need to be accepted and to be part of the group and to just be um, like the same as everyone else. So it's kind of uh, 
you know, a huge awakening experience when you find yourself even internally, um, like separate, you know what I mean? And then like starting to ask yourself questions like if I'm, if I feel differently on this one thing, how much more different am I than the people around me? And is it because I'm wrong? Like, you know, I, the word deviant, you know, implies deviation. So, you know, and that word is something I'm sure, you know, we're all familiar with, uh, just cause you know, it's, it's, you know, we've, we've been reclaiming it over the recent years, but it has a negative connotation to it, you know? Um, and I, as a creative, as an artist, I love deviation. I, I love exploring uh, avenues other people haven't. And I honestly think like, you know, as a, um, as, as a species, that's really where we get to evolve and find new ways of dealing with things and, you know, um, really elevate ourselves moving forward. So, you know, just trying to embrace that um, and, and, and kind of find ourselves in there where we're still being, you know, um, you know, thoughtful and accepting and loving and kind uh, and all those other things um, that we cherish as a community. Yeah, anyway. <laughs> I hope that made sense. <laughs> I could jump in briefly. <laughs> um, yeah, I definitely, one, I think for me, it's incredibly disturbing to know that throughout history, adults continue to shame our children. They continue to humiliate our children like this. Um, and of course, I'm putting that mostly through a Western um, context, um, given that queerness was accepted in so many other cultures before colonization, like the Philippines, where I also descend from. Hi. Um, <laughs> and uh, I, I think from there, it, it, it shows for me, like, the deep hypocrisy of hetero society, the hypocrisy of you know, we, we call queer folks the deviants, we call queer folks the predators, and yet here is a straight man parading around a naked child. Here are straight men in the church, you know, assaulting boys and other queer children. Um, so apart from the shocking image in my head now, um, I'm definitely kind of like building up a certain rage when I think about, wow, this has this been a decades, perhaps centuries long institution of shaming queer children through a very disturbing sexual context, which I just feel um, plays a lot into modern day, again, what seems to point out how we treat kids who want to play in sports, how kids want to use the bathroom, I mean, it's like, why are straight people so obsessed with our bodies? Like, I also like, this also reminds me of how I feel like adults tend to forget what it was like to be a child. They tend to forget that we are exactly the same as we are now, as we were when we were 11 years old. The only difference is that we have new experiences to inform our decisions. We have new words to speak about what we feel but internally we're the same, you know? And so, I mean, I'm just thinking about how like, when I was a young person, I, I had all of these feelings in my head, but because you don't see that sort of thing, you know, on TV or in your life, you don't say anything. 
or you have all these feelings in your head, but you don't know how to say it because you don't have the words for it. So you don't say anything. And there's just a lot of silencing that's happening with these kids just because they don't have the tools to speak about what they want, which is why I think it's really important to have these kinds of conversations and these kinds of books for these young people so that they know this is how you talk about it. You know, you can actually see on the page that someone is feeling exactly the same way you feel. And this is what we call it. Now we have a word for it. You know, I just find it so enraging when people treat children as if they are just stupid, you know? And it's like, no, I mean, some kids make dumb mistakes, (laughs) but like overall, we all have the same sort of, um, we all have the skills to think critically and to feel critically, no matter the age. And you just have to be able to have the vocabulary to have that conversation. Shelby, let me hear your response to all this, if you have one. Yeah, um, these are all great points, everybody. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, no, it's weird that um, adults are bigger bullies than than kids are because yeah i guess because they have more experiences and you know like maybe deep-rooted shame and lack of um skills to talk about their own issues that they projected onto others in these like extreme weird sexual ways yeah and then i mean it, it is weird that like so many people are obsessed with what's in our pants like what who cares like who cares what fucking bathroom i use just let me piss <laughs> Truly. I mean, I see so many like sci-fi shows like Battlestar Galactica where like they all use the same restrooms and showers. Like I know it's like a small, small thing, but that's one of those things that I like loved about sci-fi and fantasy is that you can kind of like create a world that is better. And um, I don't know. I hope we get to that point. I don't mind peeing next to somebody. That's the uh, that's a good transition spot as we reflect on the world of the X-Men for just a moment. Going back to Magnus Hirschfeld, the guy we were just talking about, he went on to create a community for himself. He found a community, he found partners, uh, he built a business where he provided support to people, he provided research. And then at a particular point, the Nazis came into power and threw queer people into concentration camps and killed them and burned down his building and all of his research. Let's talk about the X-Men for just a minute. The X-Men is the queer allegory, not just the queer allegory, but the allegory for anyone who has been disenfranchised. We've talked about this on the podcast a lot, but what makes a good threat in an X-Men comic book? There are multiple kinds. There are mutants, because that's the name for the people who are different. There are mutants who use their powers for evil, because these are super-powered characters who do have really difficult capabilities. Uh, In the new book that just came out yesterday, uh, at the time we're recording this, Kieran Gillen in Immortal X-Men number 10 draws a direct parallel from that allegory. He goes, yes, the X-Men or mutants are like queer people, but also when they come out, they kill people. They destroy people because their powers are out of control. So they are dangerous, which is an interesting parallel. But when we have a threat in the X-Men that is non-mutant, it is almost always a governmental body who is passing some sort of awful legislation trying to round people up. We have characters like the U-Men who are capturing mutants to hack off their body parts so they can graft them onto themselves (laughs) so that they can try to achieve superpowers. 
We have people who think that the other are disgusting or weird. We have uh, William Stryker, who is a super religious person who is trying to persecute mutants. We see uh, in the X-Men the outcasts as the heroes and the people who are fighting against them as the villains. And it's done over and over again in that every time the X-Men form a community, a safe place, whether it's Xavier's school or more recently Krakoa, everyone comes and tries to attack it and take it away. We have so many examples of this. We just talked about uh, in, in Magnus Hirschfeld's story, people burning down his stuff and throwing everyone into camps. Or the Tulsa massacre comes to mind where African-American people have formed a, a prominent community and they literally blow it up and burn it down. Uh, stories like this are one of the reasons that the X-Men are prominent in our hearts and why they stay alive in a lot of ways. Uh, Shelby, can I hear about your, if you have one, your connection to the X-Men as characters? Yeah, I mean, I I feel like it, a lot of people don't want us to have queer joy. And so, I mean, with the X-Men, they don't, they just don't want them around. And it, it does feel like a good allegory um they see us like thriving and they see like the x-men thriving and they try to shut it down because they don't have that which is unfortunate and like i said they just they become the bully yeah. which is weird <laughs> are you an x-men fan uh not particularly but uh recently i've been like oh maybe i should maybe i should get into this more <laughs> there's there's a lot to get into <laughs> yeah. oh yeah <laughs> so much <laughs> I think one of the best things you can do, though, if you're an ex, if you're thinking about becoming an X-Men fan, <laughs> it is really just starting off by reading a lot of the uh, trades, kind of like what we did with Angel Revelations, because sometimes I feel like those collections will do more for you than like the single issue series, like the Emma Frost series from the early 2000s. That was just it like turned my whole thought around on you know, Emma Frost is a character. So uh, yeah, if you want to get into it, highly recommend uh, starting with some of the trade paperbacks. There's some good stuff out there. X-Men God Loves Man Kills. There, there's some, yeah, really, really incredible intros into this world. Uh, before we start with our issue review, Shelby, I wanted to ask you one last question. Your book is dedicated very lovingly to your Uncle Doug. Uh, tell us about your Uncle Doug. So my uncle Doug uh, died of AIDS in 1990, I believe. And um, it felt very important to put him in this book because my family doesn't talk about him. And that happens a lot with people who have died of AIDS. We don't talk about them, which is really unfortunate. And there's like this gap in queer history where all these, all these older gay men died of AIDS and there is no elders in that sense for us to, um, Ask how, ask how it went or ask how that time was. Um, so it was really important for me to pay homage to him because my family, yeah, like I said, doesn't talk about it, but the few family members that I was able to pull information out of, it was almost like, like I was able to like experience him, even though I never got to meet him. Um, like there's a, there's a, in the very beginning of the book, there's a picture of him that is from a a newspaper article from a local newspaper here in San Antonio, which I like, I didn't even know existed. And the, yeah, they, um, they wrote about his experience with AIDS, which was, you know, I couldn't imagine during that time being in the newspaper and saying like, yeah, I have AIDS. That sounds so incredibly scary. And having like a picture of your face, you know, sounds like you would become a target, but that, that was very admirable of him. And it was cool that my, my aunt still had that and like shared it with me. 
So I opened the door in my family to talk about it more and not feel so like stigmatized and weird. Have you read the uh, mini comic Jerome? I have not. Ooh, baby. All right. I'm that, that in the chat. You can see the, the link to it. Um, I'm a little biased because I was the judge for the mice grants and I picked this one as the grand prize winner, but this one is about, um, D's, I believe uncle named Jerome who died in the AIDS epidemic. And this was their way of giving Jerome a voice since, as you said, people don't talk about the people who have died of AIDS and it's bullshit. Um, but yeah, I think you'd really enjoy that comment. So I'm going to oversimplify Queer Journey for just a minute as a prequel to our review. When we grow up in a dominant society, which is often a very Christian or particularly conservative society for many of us, we are part of the group think that bullies outside people. Sexism and racism and homophobia and ableism are so carefully interwoven into our structure that we often don't know what we're participating in. We see the kids getting bullied at school. Maybe we participate, maybe we silently watch. Maybe like Magnus in that story we just talked about, we sit back and we feel horrified, but we don't know how to say anything. Once we come out, we start looking for the other people who've been hurt so that we can share our stories with others who've been hurt. We start looking for community among the quote unquote outcasts. We apologize for the things that we participated in and we step away from the rest. Now, I'm working in Utah. My primary job, my listeners know, is as a therapist. A lot of what I do here locally, uh, there's a good majority of my clients who grew up LDS or Mormon, because that's the local religion. And a lot of our work as they are navigating the coming out process is figuring out how to leave behind this religion that they have loved their whole lives, that has given them purpose and community, but it requires conformance. It requires them to hide in plain sight and to deny themselves happiness. And leaving that behind, we're going to land back on community over and over again, is a really tricky thing. Uh, as a prerequisite <laughs> for all of our listeners who may be religious or who have come from religious environments, there is going to be some conversation about religion today. We're going to be talking a lot about Angel's very Catholic boarding school. What has happened in my experience, and I want to treat this with delicacy, is when we have religions that have a large part in rule and law and and tradition, there's a lot of corruption that has been allowed to be uh, to, to kind of seep through. And it may or may not be separate from the religious beliefs themselves. But what we end up happening is a lot of uh, is having a lot of men in power who are using that power to hurt other people. And there is going to be sensitive content in today's episode about child abuse and murder and gay hazing and other difficult things, because we're talking about some heady concepts uh, from a really powerful story. So just kind of setting that up, listen with your heart, uh, take a break if you need to, because there could be a little bit of trauma-inducing conversation as we talk. We're not gonna worry about censoring, but we do wanna know that all, all voices are welcome here and everybody comes from different experiences and different life places. Uh, all five of us in this room have very different life journeys and, uh, and ways that we have learned how to love ourselves in these institutions and families and communities that didn't always treat us as if we were safe. We may not have been the person paraded in front of the classroom naked to be laughed at. We may have been the person sitting in the classroom seeing everyone else laugh at what you are, right? And it comes from kind of all sides. As we get into today's story, I just wanted to kind of 
start that out. Uh, any comments from the panel before we jump into Angel Revelations? Um, I can't believe you sent me this book and told me nothing about it. <laughs> <laughs> I started reading it. I had actually planned, because it was five issues, I thought uh -huh. reading an issue every day up until um, the podcast so that I, I wouldn't get caught unawares. And I ended up just reading all five at once. And I was like, this is, this is how dare he <laughs> give me a good book to read. <laughs> but yeah, this was, this was excellent. And it, it reminded me of why I loved superhero comics in the first place. It, it, I'm really glad that we read it. Yeah, I want to say that um, I felt like this was a hidden gem um, in like the X-Men limited series. I mean, there are a lot. There's Iceman limited series, is five issues or a chamber limited series. It's sometimes hard to, especially if you're reading like the main X titles and you're like a hardcore X-Men fan, you can't read everything. Um, and this is one of those that I'm sure slipped through the cracks for a lot of people because it was published under the Marvel Knights imprint. It had a very weird vibe, kind of like M. Night um, Shyamalan style, um, you know, storytelling. It's not like the traditional superheroics that we've come to expect from the property. Um, uh, but this is definitely very interesting and I think it's aged very well. I don't know if it, um, it was received very well when it first came out, uh, but I think this book, you know, works really well in the current, you know, milieu we live in and the current context we have. Uh, Shelby and Rohan, any thoughts before we jump in? Shelby can go first if you wish. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I know I'm on the opposite end where I like, I don't read superhero comics. I mostly read like non-fiction stuff so anytime I'm reading fiction my brain's like what's happening um but no yeah I read this and I was like I read it all at once too and I was like oh shit this is so fucking good and like the art I've at first I was like hmm, I don't know about this art but it grew on me and it kind of reminded me of like old spawn comics I used to read as a kid where everybody's just like weirdly tall and kind of lanky and like oddly drawn but I, I really liked it um, like almost everyone else in this room, I read it in one sitting. <laughs> of course, last night, um, <laughs> I was texting Chad, like, I have so many notes, but, um. Yeah, Rohan texted me last night. <laughs> I'm, I'm finally running through Angel and I have, in all caps, notes! <laughs> I, I literally have a, my phone up with all of my notes. I literally, like, pages <laughs> yeah. and pages of, like, my thoughts. <laughs> um, I, I loved the um overall concept i loved how so many details motifs imagery are played with um to just help build the story in a really dramatic way um so similar to shelby i tend to read um other books that are not of the graphic nature i i tend to to read like just full length literary texts that are not accompanied with um visual storytelling and so this for me was like a really just clever um, construction, for lack of a better term. <laughs> so let me do a little bit of setup. Angel is one of the very first X-Men. He's the guy with wings. I just referenced a few minutes ago, Immortal X-Men number 10, which just came out the day before we were recording this, in which it's a deep uh, dive into Professor X's inner monologue. 
And in this inner monologue, Professor X admits to himself the reason that he recruited each of the original X-Men. And the reason he recruited Angel was because he had money, which is so insightful into Professor X's psychology. But we'll have a conversation about that another time. I mean, look, every group needs a bank. You know, like yeah, right there's there. always some friend that happens to be the one that's like, I'll put it on my card. Everyone can else tell me, you know? <laughs> So Angel, boy. <laughs> Angel, is, Angel is Warren Worthington III. He's the child of billionaires. He got a backup series in the early 60s books in which we very briefly see his very rich parents concerned because he's a difficult child and we have to watch him and all we want to do is drink and spend our money. And they're, they're very hoity-toity. We'll be talking a lot more about Angel's parents in some upcoming episodes soon. Uh, it doesn't end well for either of them, by the way, if you didn't know. It's very Macbeth. We'll, uh, we'll get there. Uh, I said, yes, Macbeth is correct. I had to make sure I had my, my Shakespearean plays right. So Angel was sent off to a boarding school and his wings grew. And at a certain point there was a fire and he had to dress in a weird costume out of the theater department and save the kids from the fire. And that was kind of the whole origin that we were given for him. That's it. Uh, then he goes off to New York City. He designs himself a weird little superhero costume and a uh, gun that fires ping pong balls filled with gas. <laughs> <laughs> he fights some bad guys and joins the X-Men. Uh, he briefly called himself the Avenging Angel. So what we have in this series is a exploration kind of slowed down of his time at that boarding school when his mutant powers are activating. Uh, I'm going to briefly kind of give a little bit of a synopsis of the first issue, and then we're going to talk about some of the plot points and some of the things that happen in this series. Uh, this is Angel Revelations. As Andrew mentioned, it's under the Marvel Knights imprint. It ran for five issues back in 2008. Uh, the writer is a, a Roberto Aguirre Sacasa. I have never met Roberto, but I understand he identifies as gay and as a person of color. He's a prominent writer who has done a ton of work across comics and TV. Uh, the, the penciler is Adam Polina, who many of uh, X-Men fans may know from his incredible run on X-Force. It's a very strange style when you first see him. It's such a breakaway from traditional superhero pencils, uh, but it's beautiful. Uh, he also does his own inks here. The color is uh, by Matt Hollingsworth, the letters by Dave Lanfear, and the editors by Alejandro uh, Arbona and Warren Simmons. So in a five-issue limited series, written by Roberto Aguirre Sacasa and Adam Polina, we see the X-Men's original team member, Angel, Warren, Worthing Warren Worthington III, at a Catholic boarding school in Vermont, which is filled with white people. <laughs> Everyone in this book is white. Just saying that out loud, it admits. I mean, I, yeah, I noticed that immediately. It's like, oh, okay, these people have money. Capital <laughs> M, money. Okay. Warren is thriving when we first meet him here as the star athlete on the school basketball team, but his body's going through a lot of changes. He's losing weight. He finds feathers in his bed. And soon he starts to see scars on his back that are forming. And soon wings emerge. He isolates from his peers, he breaks up with his girlfriend, and he begins studying bird molting patterns as he starts to realize that he can fly and he has to do it in secret or he'll be persecuted. He literally begins using a binder like trans men do to strap his wings down into his back. We talk about this a lot in the early episodes of my podcast. If you go back to the early ones where we see him binding for the first time. There are gorgeous images of Catholic and biblical rituals ref references to depict his wings as stained glass backgrounds. Every cover, if you line them up in a row, kind of slowly shows Warren's journey from child into hero. We get to know three other students during this series, primarily. First, there's Brandon Hardy, who is the entitled son of the vice president. 
He's a bully who used fists and words and cruelty to take over whatever he wants. We see Amanda Cobb, who is a kind of a spoiled co-ed girl who's hot for Warren, but when he dumps her for unexplained reasons, all she wants is revenge and to make him jealous. And then we see Andrew Palmer, who is a very quiet queer kid with a big nose. He's a little skinny and scrawny. He's bullied. He's in the background. He's called names. There's a scene where he's literally held under a scalding shower by some bullies at one point to kind of haze him. Uh, it also turns out that this queer kid, who is the one that is keeping secrets because he's queer, has been targeted, targeted by Father Jerome Reynolds, who keeps finding reasons to get Andrew alone so that he can sexually abuse him. And then we have a side story going on where there is a bigoted man in black who is never named, who is hunting down mutants. There is a mother who has called for his help. He's advertised himself as somehow someone who can do exorcisms of a kind. There's a little girl named Mary Margaret who's precognitive. She's having visions of the future. And when this mysterious man in black comes to her home, he murders her mother, shoots Mary Margaret, who's a little girl in the foot, and then forces her to come along with him uh, so he can use her visions to hunt down and kill other mutants. A lot of the narration in this book is Warren writing letters to his parents that he never quite sends. He doesn't quite know how to come out to them or be honest. He keeps destroying the letters. So we're going to go on with what happens to all of these characters here. But let's take a couple of these points and start talking about it. First, I would love to hear your thoughts on Adam Polina's art and the way that it is portrayed in this book. I loved it. I the I thought it was sick as fuck. I mean, the the very second I opened that first page, I was like, oh, okay. Oh, okay. I see what we're doing here. I like this. <laughs> I just, I really enjoy when an artist is able to do something that isn't house style. You know, it always, um, I think that's something that Marvel Knights did though. You know, all of those comics were like that very, um, let's do what the indie folks are doing kind of situation, you know? Um, I also think it was a really good choice because Warren's story is so much about his body. And I feel like this art lends to showing that off in a way that makes you wonder like what's going on with his anatomy is, you know, a part of it is the fact that that, that is the, the artist's style. But another is that, you know, he's a runner. He's supposed to be lean. He's supposed to also be strong as well. So it's like the art was perfect for the story, I think. I think when he like finally gets his wings, because everything's so like elongated, the wings are so much more elongated and like grandiose. And you're like, oh, oh, I see what's happening here. Yeah, there's, yeah a, like, there's a there's a point where you turn a page and there's this two page spread and it's his little body with just his wings just poof, filling the whole yeah. space. It's gorgeous. Oh yeah, I was like, we need to get the name of that binder because that's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I need one of those. <laughs> that is unreal. <laughs> I, I love the art. I think. Um, I mean, I'm, I think I'm having seen Adam Polina's art in X Force and the more mainstream titles. Um, and comparing that to this, I think here he really, really pushed uh, the exaggeration of the figures. Um, everything's kind of bent and twisty and like, you know, a little more elongated. Um, there's a beautiful splash page in issue two, which is a very clear call out reference to um, uh, Gustav Klimt. 
Uh, that's the, 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 the splash page where Warren and his girlfriend are like lying on the bed and you see all the Clint style like um, uh, curlicues and filigree all around. Uh, it's really beautiful. And I, I think the, the, the covers alone with the stained glass motif and sort of playing all this, um, all this uh, bendy figurative work against uh, all that symmetry it's such a delight because you have. Um, I feel like when you when you when you invoke symmetry, you're always invoking like Apollonian values of like, you know, stability, harmony. Everything is like um, uh, set the status quo, that type of thing. And then you 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 mess with that with with asymmetry, which you know the art always does with the people. Um, and you have this friction there in the art, which is just baked in. I, I think that's part of what gives everything this sort of like unsettling, strange and weird vibe. Even though if you really think about it, like if you know X-Men, you know, like the original five, Angel's kind of the most vanilla of the characters. Sure. But I think he's got like, because of this, he's got one of the strangest and quirkiest series. Um, uh, it's a really interesting, you know, meld of uh, influences in there. I love to go into old churches in big cities and you go in and there is the stained glass and the statues and it's going to sound like I'm, it's like very Sistine Chapel, but the figures are often like very elongated and they have strange poses and open mouths and long necks. I mean, picture images you've seen of kind of Christ on the cross or the way angels will float in the sky, the, the way the Archangel Gabriel's depicted so much biblical and, and Catholic reference in this series. Uh, I'm picturing Adam Polina with just like layouts of classic art from different churches all over the room as he's drawing these gorgeous pictures. It's, it really is very pretty, almost to the effect of like, these, these characters are so not human in a way. They're, they're almost mythical in the way they're portrayed. Uh, Rohan, let me hear some of your thoughts on the art if, you, if you'd like mm -hmm. to share. Yeah, um, so definitely what I, love the most as a writer is um, how we tell like little details, how the details play into the story. And so I loved, for example, like the play of color palettes. Um, so oftentimes, especially like in the first issue um, of the five, you see a lot of like reds and blacks to kind of like depict um, more of the villains, uh, the priests, of course, who are traditionally um, in Catholicism um, or in other parts of the Christianity dressed in black as well, but these are kind of like the colors that play into like, these are the villains, just how we tell the story. Um, there's even a cute little point in, um, I think it's the second issue where you see Brandon, who's kind of like the bully teenager. Um, he's like working out all like these dumbbell weights. And there's a point where he's sitting up and his head is framed by like a weight, but like that weight is actually like, kind of create like a black halo around his head, which I love that little detail. But then like the color palette for um, Warren, as you all would assume is like more blues, whites, more like those like celestial, pure angelic colors. But of course that starts to get played more with in um, issue two, when he tends to become more physically violent, gets more frustrated with himself. Then we see more reds get more attached to him as well. Um, I'm also a fan of the motif of shapes that come up a lot. Um, in my notes, uh, there was like a big like ding like moment where I was like, oh my gosh, like the imagery of a triangle pops up a lot around Angel. 
Um, and of course, for folks who don't know in the Catholic Church or Christianity is in general, I was born Catholic. Now I am a raging homosexual pagan. <laughs> but <laughs> um, for me, of course, in, in Christianity, the, the Catholic ideology, um, three is a really powerful number because it represents the Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost, three aspects of uh, the same God. And you see triangles pop up a lot for Warren. There's a really um, moment when um, Brandon's kind of bullying Andrew in the second issue. But in one of the panels, when Warren's kind of turning around and facing Brandon, there's like a triangle on his back, which is like subtle, like in the art, but like triangles pop up a lot around Warren, which I was like, that's really cool. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. so pretty. You can see a lot of that in the, the first issue too, just because of his like, his broad shoulders going down to a point, you know, like, yeah, it's, it's all over the place. I also think that like, they were really fortunate that Warren was Catholic because I gotta say of all like genres and styles to play with, religious is one of the best. Catholic, they know it. They got the colors, they got the fashion, they got the the lore, you know, like if there was anything to like be used, it's just like a perfect situation, honestly. <laughs> I mean, think about like the, the Met Gala where I think it was like, was the, the theme, I think it was like Catholicism or something, but it was probably the best one that has ever happened, you know? So it was perfect. I'm really glad that. Yeah. There's like all the like stained glass too, like on the covers. And then like, sometimes the sky will just be stained glass and it's gorgeous. Yeah. yeah. There, there are multiple images, uh, full page art uh, pieces in this book that I'm like, oh my God, I could hang that on my wall. Adam Polina, beautiful, beautiful work on this. If you're listening, we are huge fans, incredible. I also really love how long Warren's scarf is in the first issue. <laughs> like it gets to a point where I'm like, what is going on? So like, look at like page, I think it's like 16. It's right before we go back to um, the villain. And his scarf is like in the sky, five feet ahead of him. Stylistically, great. Realistically, hysterical. <laughs> Um, but another thing I wanted to talk about with this first issue that I thought was really, really cool was how fucking scary it was, you know, that entire first scene, I was like, this is the exorcist. This is amazing. I can't wait to see where else this goes. And so to see that great combination between horror and slice of life and superhero, it's like a really good combination of all three. So there are three major plot points in this book. I want to I want to take uh, spend a little bit of time on all three. There's more than just the three, but there's three main ones. The first one is Warren's journey as a hero. Uh, as we've mentioned, a lot of this story is about his body, about him figuring out who he is and how he fits into the world. It's him hiding in plain sight. It's him binding himself down and making himself small and hiding in the background, distancing himself from the people who care about him to the point where they then become his enemies. He is seen as the rival for Brandon, as uh, Amanda's like, oh, how could he possibly reject me? I'm the best thing that ever happened to anyone ever. <laughs> and she's so mad when she's dumped. And the only place he finds a friendship is, is with his, uh, his queer ally, uh, Andrew, who he has to stand up for multiple times. The story, the journey of him in this is him discovering that his wings give him power his queerness. The thing that makes him different is the thing that makes him special. 
And as he, uh, as he learns to use his power, he gets to save people. And initially he wants to do it to help his friend. Andrew has discovered that he has wings and it, we'll talk more about Andrew and Father Reynolds in a minute, but uh, Angel uses those wings to intimidate. When the fire is set, he uses his wings to save people. Uh, he ultimately needs the help of his friends in order to be okay, but it's very much his journey of self-possession and coming into his own as someone who's proud of his queerness or the thing that makes him different. Uh, let's talk about the portrayal of Warren here and his journey. What are your thoughts? I, I think it's really interesting how <laughs> I feel like Warren never denies or accepts any sort of accusations about his queerness which I thought is so interesting because like I feel like if someone were you know back in the in the day anyway if someone were bullying you and being like what are you gay like you have to be like I'm not you know but Warren he's just like why is that a problem if I was you know and that was like really cool to see that sort of response to that kind of of bullying, which is, I'm not even going to give that question any time of my day, you know? Um, but Warren is so interesting. He's Warren, interesting. Warren famously has another gay friend from school who's Cameron Hodge. <laughs> Andrew Baisley may be the only one who knows that reference, but we'll talk about him another time. <laughs> he just, like, he seems like, I don't know, I almost want to know what he was like before he started going through his, you know, ex-puberty. Because, like, it seems like he already has some ideas of right and wrong and standing up for people already in his mind. And when he gets these mutant powers, he's, it, it pushes him even further to go down that direction. So I wonder, like, if before he started having these physical changes you know who was he was he on the side of making fun of people I don't really know you know and I I almost don't I want to know out of curiosity but for this book in particular I'm glad that I don't at the same time <laughs> I've read a lot of I've read a lot of angel stories he is often arrogant and often okay. flighty, but he's he's rarely if ever a bully okay yeah I love your point, Steens, about like him not answering about his sexuality. Because I was like, honey, that's scoff. It says everything, but you know, it's a different story. <laughs> yeah, usually if someone doesn't answer, I know the answer. Let's go Andrew, then Rohan. Go ahead. Oh, so I, I love that the book opened with... Um, uh, and, and ends with uh, letters that Warren never really sends. You know what I mean? I thought it was a really good framing device for the whole story. I mean, I read it in one go, I think like everyone else here. Um, and it really coheres very well because of those letters. Um, it's clear Warren has a lot of um, parental issues, particularly father issues. Um, you know, his dad seems to be very cold and domineering. His mom, we get one phone call, I think, seen in the entire series, but it says a lot, and the rest of it is kind of implied. Uh, but it makes sense to me why. 
Well, just just to toss this in, there's a point where he calls home and says, hey, mom and dad, I can't come home for Christmas. And his mom's like, oh, what will the neighbors think if you're not here? Not like like it's it's such a hoity toity fancy white person response. But it, I, no, I interrupted no, Andrew. I'm sorry. I miss you, but everyone else will wonder what, where you live. <laughs> exactly. It's about her appearances, you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I do like that you brought up the letter, though. I have to say one thing about the letter writing. Mm-hmm. I think the way they ended it was poor. Mostly because at the very beginning, it is an actual letter that he crumples up and throws away. And at the end, it starts to do a little more storytelling and doesn't actually feel like a letter anymore. It feels like narration. And I was like, hmm, could have been better executed. That's my, my one thing. I was like, the letter needs to stay an actual letter, not his inner monologue. It's got to be separate. That's a very fair point. And it actually definitely occurred to me at the end. Um, you know, I think... Uh, you know, Sakasa is a playwright, and you can see that in the way he constructs the scenes. It's very much people like with a lot of friction, um, uh, you know, rubbing up against each other verbally. You know what I mean? Um, and and the letter was kind of a way to get into his head without having to do a lot of like unnecessary. Well, I guess it would have bogged the story down if he had to like dialogue this out. Mm-hmm. Um, Especially you only have the space of a five-issue miniseries, but it's a very fair point. Uh, but yeah, I think it underscores too, like, you know, how much is unsaid with Warren's character, how much he keeps kind of um, close to his chest. There are characters that, you know, are kind of motor-mouthed and you know, just kind of speak what they think constantly. And you get the opposite sense with Warren. Like, everything's so held back. Everything's so sort of, like, uh, kept close to his chest. And again, like appearances is a big theme in the book, right? I think his parents have really inculcated him this idea that it really matters how other people see you because of whatever it, 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 it affects us, you know, how it reflects on us and all that stuff. Like the themes of uh, children of narcissists, right? Um, the idea that it's not about you and, you and your mistakes are not about you or, or your personal development. It's really about how it reflects on us. Um, and that's really rough, especially since we have literally like this physical change going on with him, um, that, you know, he has to deal with manifesting and it's definitely not acceptable in the context that he's being bred to be in. Uh, Rohan and then Shelby, I'd love to hear your thoughts as well. Yeah. Um, I think what I found really interesting about Angel's development here is particularly how he, as a white, allegedly straight man, boy, um, handles patriarchal violence. Um, so like, for example, when he's calling his mom and dad and being like, I'm sorry, I can't come home. And mother's like, oh, no. So I'm trying to play chat here. But, um, <laughs> and of course, we hear in the background the father expressing a lot of verbal violence. And um, we also see that. Um, there's other points where he protects Andrew from Brandon with being bullied. He cosplays uh, the Archangel Michael when handling Father Reynolds to kind of stop him from abusing any other boys. Um, but I think what's interesting, especially, is the fact that not only as a mutant he has wings, but like the way um, the artist kind of draws him in ways that are almost like inhuman. Um, I know earlier it was brought up that he's very like elongated, um, very like 
Hercules, Apollonian, as Andrew used that word earlier, but like there's definitely a moment in like issue two on page 17 that really brought my attention. Um, there's, a, there's a point where you see like a, a halo over his head and um, his face is almost like elongated. It's almost like bird-like, which I really appreciated because then it, it begin, you begin to see like the affiliation of him kind of being like above other men in weird ways. Um, this particularly comes up very, in very fascinating ways when dealing with Brandon and Amanda. Um, you know, how like, and it's also, I think, coincidental for me when thinking about patriarchal violence today, because as we're recording in this day, this is also the anniversary of the uh, Watsonville riots in Watsonville, California, where um, Filipino men were actually being physically attacked by white men for dancing with white women. So um, seeing like the dichotomy of uh, Brandon and Warren and Amanda, the weird trinity of Amanda going to Brandon, a very violent, very patriarchal man um, to sort of like get revenge. Um, I, I really did appreciate how throughout the entire um, run of this, um, Warren becomes this almost like exemplary idea of how men should handle patriarchal violence of course he's he's inhuman at the same time so i'm like there's no perfect man wonderful thank you for telling me that <laughs> uh, and then shelby uh i was i the writer i had not heard of him before and then i was looking him up just earlier and i was like oh no wonder it's so good because he wrote like glee and sabrina and you know all the <laughs> great things that deal with like like and a lot of the same sort of themes were they in the in the book where they like deal with like teenage drama but interspersed with all these like really heavy sort of topics and so like that it I feel like they did that really really well. Um, I totally agree about the writing the teenagers. Yeah. One of my notes for issue one is when she's talking to uh, his friend and. He said, like, well, you're the girlfriend. And he's and she's like, and that just kills you, doesn't it? And I was like, oh, this is drama. I love the drama. It's euphoria. <laughs> <laughs> the horror, too. Like, they, they flip back and forth really, really well. And I, I mean, like, even like Sabrina, they do that in Sabrina a lot. So let's introduce the second plot point I brought up. We have a character who has never been seen again, to my knowledge, by the name of Andrew Palmer. Andrew is drawn a little bit kind of nerdy. He's got a big nose and he's kind of a misfit and he hides in the background a lot. He's queer. He's clearly very enamored by Warren, who he sees as this, you know, beautiful person that he can just emulate and maybe fantasize about, you know, having a, a, a house and kids with later in his life. Uh, Andrew is also a target for abuse. And I'll address this just in one sentence. We don't have to spend time on it, but there is a lot of documented history of Catholic priests using positions of power and trust to abuse children. It happens to women, it happens to straight boys, it also happens to, or has happened to a lot of gay kids. And this is that story where Father Reynolds is targeting Andrew, he's finding reasons to get him alone, convincing him that he's a sinner, and now I need to punish you, you need to show me gratitude, uh, the doors close, and Andrew is a very silent figure. Now, at a certain point, he discovers Angel's secret, that he has wings, and this builds a bond between he and Angel. Angel starts to stand up for him a little bit when the bullies show up. 
There's a scene where Andrew's in bed and the bullies drag him out of bed and put him under a scalding hot fire and hold him there. And Angel has to be the one to come rescue him. He's the kid that doesn't have his own voice. At the end, Andrew gets to throw a couple punches. He gets to help save the day a little bit. And he kind of finds his own space and peace. But a lot of his queer journey is about him being a victim, needing to be aided by his allies and find support before he feels comfortable being his own character. Uh, I would love to see a revisit by this character. So uh, the second major plot point I wanted to talk about is the portrayal of Andrew Palmer. Let me hear your thoughts. First off, yeah. Andrew has the craziest faces. <laughs> <laughs> like the biggest expressions of the whole story. Yeah, like it's kind of like unreal how expressive they made uh, the character, but it it's like necessary though, because it's a really intense story that he's, he's going through. Um, I personally feel like he's a little annoying. <laughs> I don't know why they're friends. What is what is Andrew bringing to this table of friendship? I would like to know. Literally nothing. Literally like nothing. To watch out for him and. Yeah, know. like is he funny? Does he no. have good taste in movies? No. Like, are they do they go shopping? Like, what? Why are they friends? I have no idea. I wish yeah, I. How do they I even meet? Like. <laughs> It's cool. Oh, it's true. And he's a sophomore, right? And um, uh, Angel is a senior. Yeah. Yeah. So apparently the, the, the parent, uh, it's said in the story somewhere that um, uh, Warren's parents know Andrew's parents. Yeah. yeah and they yeah. told Warren to watch out for Andrew. So that's, that's not a friendship, though. That's not yeah, a friendship. It's not, it's not, it's not yeah. the strongest friendship type. Yeah. And I, I wish I would have seen a little bit more of their friendship that wasn't just Warren saving him, you know? Because otherwise, he kind of feels like Warren's ward <laughs> rather than his actual friend. And we are getting a lot more stories of queer people as heroes nowadays. This is 2008, which was kind of the cusp. Iceman hasn't come out publicly yet at this right. point. Right. Uh, so we have a we have an a, a clearly queer character. It doesn't he doesn't openly say I'm a homosexual at any point that I saw, but he's clearly painted to be the queer character. And this is a time where we didn't see a lot of queer joy in books. The stories yeah. were often about queer people being victims and maybe learning to like navigate coming out and finding peace in themselves. And uh, I, I I like that it was a queer person writing this story. If yeah. it was a straight person writing, I'd be like, oh, here's one more story. But <laughs> there's a certain amount of sensitivity to it that's really that's really lovely. Uh, but he's not given a lot of room to shine. I agree. He's mostly the victim or the one to be saved. Well, I feel like the 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 part of the reason he's in the story is he's such a huge speaking. By the way, Andrew's a great name for a gay character. Speaking as an Andrew myself, uh, as a gay Andrew, <laughs> because it literally means manly. You know what I mean? So there's already like that that friction there with the, the you know, uh, you know what it means to be a man versus like how you act and all that stuff. Uh, but I do think like the angel is so perfect. Like Warren, he's so, I mean, apart from the mutation, he's blonde, he's handsome, he's male, he's, you know, he's older, he's self-assured, uh, people fawn over him, they want his attention or they're jealous of him, you know? So, like, I guess Andrew serves the, the, the function in the story as being, like, someone maybe that could be more relatable. Um, 
Sorry about the background sounds, by the way. Someone is ready. Someone is ready. So yeah, I think I think uh, he's he's really there to to to, to show Angel better through contrast, um, and and to give obviously to give him someone to save and all this other stuff. But, yeah, that's true. He is an angel for a reason, you know. But I, I really agree with Steens here, where my feeling is that we could have had a little more development. We felt I felt like there was like a little rising action in like the friendship between Warren and Andrew, and it just kind of got. Um, barreled over by the plot like by issue four like we had to go into this plot already with like the religious murder and all that other stuff so sorry like no more dialogue we're done we're just gonna go (laughs) everything's in flames panic (laughs) uh rohan did you have any thoughts on andrew yeah i actually so now that i'm i'm reflecting a bit more and looking at some stuff uh i'm looking at like issue three page four where he kind of like hints at he might like Warren he's like are you kidding two weeks alone with you two weeks alone on campus that's like a dream come true (laughs) (laughs) um I kind of like how again the motif of halos kind of pop up and this is like the one time we get to see um Andrew with a halo but I actually kind of appreciated um the almost archaic almost Arthurian um, damsel in distress kind of role Andrew plays here. So, cause so often it's always Warren coming to the rescue. And I was like, oh, this feels very like Lancelot and, and um, Guinevere. And she's like, oh, rescue me. And he's like, I'm coming. So, you know, <laughs> um, I kind of appreciated him for that. And because of that, I really, we do see by like issue five, um, Andrew kind of coming into his power, kind of starting to really stand up. That's when you see the, um, Vigilante Exorcist, um, AKA a priest. Um, I found that really interesting, but I, I feel like, yeah, I definitely agree that I wanted more of Andrew. I hope um, if he ever comes back into the uh, universe of Marvel, he returns and is like, hey, Warren, guess what? I'm also a mutant. Cute. <laughs> I would love that. Uh, there's an iconic scene, and we won't delve into this right now, but one of the one of the key moments in the middle of the book that's kind of one of the climaxes is Warren dresses, using the theater department's clothing, he dresses as Michael the Archangel, Andrew shines a spotlight, and then he appears like very ghost of Christmas future before Father, Father Reynolds and is like, you're going to burn in hell unless you turn yourself into the authorities. And thus he frees Andrew from his oppressor, uh, which is a, a beautiful scene. Uh, the third that I wanted to talk about, and we'll close with this uh, this conversation. In issue one, we meet a man who is all in black. He's very, um, what's that show called? Justified. Yeah. He's like, he's, like very, he's got a shotgun. He's not a mutant, but he, for some reason, wants to kill mutants. Uh, he shoots this girl's mother and then shoots this little girl named Mary Margaret, who's just the cutest little thing, who's having visions of the future. And he's forcing Mary to take him around and He's killing other mutants. He shows up very strongly in the first issue. He disappears for a while, comes back in four, and then he's the major villain in five. Uh, he's after Angel. We learn he has killed several other mutants that have never been seen again, that have bizarre little powers. Uh, one of them is a set of conjoined twins. I'll post some images. There's some interesting things. But he's killing everything he determines to be a freak. Uh, he storms the institution that is choking the queerness out of people through tradition. And he's there to literally murder people. He's the man with the gun. 
there is uh, uh, he dies kind of under his own his own hubris. Angel picks up the gun and flies into the sky, and the preacher lets go, refusing to be caught, basically, and he disappears into a river. So this could be a character. He probably went and joined like the Friends of Humanity a few years later, <laughs> protesting and voting for Graydon Creed. Uh, but uh, what are your thoughts on the portrayal of the man in black and uh, little Mary Margaret? I thought it was so creepy. Like, why is the brim of his hat so big? You know, what secrets <laughs> is he hiding under all of that? Um, I, I thought also he was a really cool villain because he wasn't someone with a superpower. You know, he was someone with a gun and he was taking advantage of someone with a superpower in order to get what he needed to get done, which is perfect. You know, that's that's what we need to see. Um, I will say, Mary Margaret, I know your foot just got shot off, but... <laughs> As a child, you have great knees. She needs to hop her way out of there. You know? I was like, girl, find a way out. This is insanity. Um, <laughs> but the, the the whole way that the story went, I thought was really cool. Because, you know, you come in and you, uh, first of all, you think that he's going to help because he is a man of religion, you know? And then to show that he actually has this um, ulterior motive uh was a good shock but also a good reminder that you know the villains don't have to have powers to be scary yeah yeah i feel like he was like a almost like a real person like i i could actually see someone taking their religion to such an extreme to be like yeah we need to kill all the freaks yeah this is the guy that storms into the gay clubs and with the gun and i mean we see this in our stories all the time this is that man yeah yeah, his line was actually really striking. He says, um, I think it's an issue three. Give me a sec. Oh, um, so the line is to have faith is to believe without proof. Those abominations are living proof of God's great works. Comfort the weak and faithless, and they are undeserving of comfort. Yeah, only those who believe without seeing shall be allowed entry into his holy kingdom. And that's his whole rationale for mass murder. Um, and you know, it's a, it, it, I mean, I agree with Shelby. It, it feels very real, uh, and uncomfortably so, because you know, we, we've all experienced or seen out there people who will kind of twist religion and catechism in order to serve an agenda of harm and violence towards other people. Um, so he's just a great villain for this because it's just true horror, you know, when he comes in with all of those. And it's, it's especially someone who grew up um, Catholic, uh, you know, went to Jesuit school and all that stuff. Like the word of God has so much um, gravitas and weight. It's, it's portentous. It hits you in the heart and it's like you are almost compelled to, to follow. And when it's, um, you know, put up against like, you know, the, the, the expectation that all these heinous things are about to happen. Um, it's super frightening. It just brings me back to like, you know, it makes you feel powerless. And I, I feel bad for, for Mary. I mean, you know, being led around on a leash for most of the mini series with her foot shot off, like that poor little girl with, you know, I hope she comes back a little more empowered. Um, with a metal foot. Yeah, with a, with a cyborg foot, you know, yeah. that has laser beams coming out of it. Yeah. Or something like that, right? 
there, I wanted to reference this for our completists out there. There's a, just a, a one page, a, excuse me, double page spread. It's beautiful where it shows the victims that the man in black has killed. Uh, he says he killed, quote, the old woman in Illinois who healed with her touch, the little boy in Georgia who spoke every language known to man, the conjoined twins in Nebraska who walked on water. Uh, so all these characters are eligible for return on Krakoa now. <laughs> if they go through the waiting room, they can get there. The, uh, all of the titles of these books are extraordinarily religious as well, I wanted to know. Yeah. The opening is called Annunciation and the ending is called Ascension. Uh, it's very clearly built around theme, but also the idea of ascending beyond what I'm leaving behind. I'm I'm rising above with my wings and, and going off toward my new life. The book closes. Mary Margaret has, her, Margaret has been sent to a foster home and she's like sketched a little color image of the X-Men, kind of pretending at what she can see in Angel's future. We also get Professor X in Warren's mind as the battle gets bad. We see a mental summons. We never see him in the book, but he from far away is like, Warren, you're in danger. So he's already planned to recruit the billionaire rich kid <laughs> to his team and needs him to survive long enough to get there. Uh, <laughs> uh, 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 Rohan, did you have any thoughts on the man in black? Yeah, um, I think when, I, when they first, introducing because he's literally the first page and he's saying name the father the son the holy ghost and the fact that he has the priest collar on um and engaging in this violence um i think the what, what the line andrew brought up was such a succinct way of really critiquing the very dark uh very bloody history of the church um especially thinking about colonization um, which, you know, the argument was, well, it's the will of God, of course. Um, and I think it's it's really um, funny now because I think it was a couple of years ago, the church pledged like $100 million in reparations, which is like 1% of the church's revenue. So I was like, bitch, like, give us the whole church. <laughs> <laughs> but um, also the, what you brought up, Chad, just now, the um, montage of, really mutants, um, this priest, anonymous priest was killing, these are all biblical references. Like yeah. when we talk about tongues, we think of like um, the apostles. So after the Pentecost, they could speak different languages to spread the word of Jesus. Walking on water, Walking on yes. Water. So the idea that like this priest is ignoring signs of divinity, is ignoring signs of God, mm. um, I found really just monumental and very, a very deep critique of how the church is completely ignoring its own teachings, right? This 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 entity, I mean, side note, I am very traumatized out of the church. <laughs> like, I'll, full disclosure, I was like, Me too. <laughs> I learned about colonization. I was like, oh no, we're done. <laughs> like, <laughs> but, um, you know, the, the idea that, that the church, this priest who is an allegory for the church is constantly ignoring signs of love, signs of compassion, signs of, of divinity, um, all for power, all for patriarchy, all for control. Um, I just thought he was, I love that he was anonymous because it, it made it more of a universal critique of how patriarchal the church is. Beautiful. I, uh, I am leaving this conversation today with two things first and foremost, although many things underneath. 
number one, a just a respect and gratitude for the people here on this panel. I'm looking at five queer individuals, including myself, who have wildly different backgrounds and uh, we're all kind of uniting in the same space where we're saying, look at what we've survived and here we are together. Uh, second, I love this book. I liked it and now we've talked about it and I love it. You guys go read it. This is the first time on this podcast we've done this kind of book review style. Normally we take one issue and really break it down. This time we did a whole series, but it is great and it makes me love the character Angel so more. Uh, so much more. Roberto Aguirre Sacasa and Adam Polina, hats off. Incredible, beautiful work. The whole team, just great, great job. Uh, so go read Angel Revelations if you haven't. Uh, as we are wrapping up, recognizing we're going to put this episode out on February 6th, uh, would you like to share any final thoughts on this experience or this book today? And if there's anything you'd like to plug and tell us where you can or where people can find you online, uh, again, February 6th is the date of release. Uh, Andrew, I know you have to jump back to work. Do you want to go first? Uh, sure, sure. Um, I just want to encourage everyone to check out this series because it's cool. Um, if Even if you're not super into superhero books, I think uh, this is definitely a cut uh, apart. It's a very strange and, and deeply weird book, and I think it deserves a little more attention. Um, uh, for my stuff, uh, I have Secret Heart Attack, my, the first issue of my new book. Uh, it's already out uh, online, so just Google it up. Um, and I'm working on issue two, so hopefully that'll be out soon. And in three weeks, uh, Shazam! Fury of the Gods, Shazamily Matters special, my first um, book coming out of DC. Please check that out. I'm so excited for that. FOC date was Jan 29, so it's going to be over by the time this podcast airs. Uh, but go into your local comic shop and pick it up um, if you're interested. And Andrew, where can people find you if they'd like to? Oh, oh, so I am on Instagram, um, Twitter, uh, Facebook as Andrew Drillon. And you can find me on YouTube. I have a YouTube channel. It's called Comic Booker. Uh, one word. Uh, yeah, check it out. Thank you, my friend. It's so good to see you. Uh, I can't wait to hang out again soon. Thank you for having me, guys. I really appreciate it. Uh, let's go to Shelby next. Uh, nothing coming out in between now and February 6th, unfortunately, but I will have a book, which is not announced yet, uh, next year, 2024, in the fall. Um, otherwise, you can go to shelbycriswell.com or shelbycriswell on, I'm only really on Instagram now. I said fuck off to Twitter. <laughs> and and uh, Shelby, S-H-E-L-B-Y, Criswell, C-R-I-S-W-E-L-L. And please go get Queer As All Get Out. Uh, support uh, Shelby's other works as well. This was an important book. It was great for me. It was great for my children. I, uh, I'm so happy to have read it and to have met you. So Steens, thank you for making me aware of Shelby. And Shelby, thank you for coming on the show today. Yeah, of course. This has been fun. Uh, Steens, would you like to go next? Yeah. Um, overall, this book was great. Reading is awesome. I, I think if, you know, you want to read, you should read. <laughs> um, yeah, take some time to really um, look at the kind of books that you're reading and ask yourself, like, what is this going to do for me in the future? You know, because sometimes it's really easy to get caught up in reading the same things over and over and over again. Um, so it's worthwhile to try something new, even if it's not something that you thought you might pick up. Like, I don't think I would have picked this up because I was like, yeah, religion stuff, angel, do I want to read this? You know, so, uh, and I'm really glad that I did. So I hope that others do the same. Um, you can find me on Instagram, 
um, and on TikTok. TikTok, if you like to watch my skating journey, I've been roller skating a lot, so uh, that's really fun. Uh, upcoming, since this comes out on the 6th, in a few days, I'll be in the Bahamas. <laughs> I'm going to a booksellers conference and giving a speech uh, about seeing yourself in new lenses. So uh, keep an eye out for that. And then uh, Heart of the City, the second collection of that called Lost and Found, that comes out in April. Uh, by the time this releases, it'll be available for you to pre-order. Fantastic. Steens, I have so much respect for you. Thank you for not only coming on the show the first time, but coming back a second time. That It, it really, truly means a lot. I, I thank you. Yeah, of course. You got my number. You got my email. Bring it back again. <laughs> I, I'll, I'll, keep, I'll keep contacting you. My husband and I tried to take our kids roller skating. Uh, the kids were not having fun. And he and I, for like six days, were like, oh, my God, I can't move. <laughs> it did not end well. <laughs> Yeah, it is my like one thing of exercise, you know, as a cartoonist sitting for hours and hours uh, all day is not the best for you, apparently. <laughs> like, and then uh, and then Rohan, would you like to go? Yes. Um, I think I said before, this was just an amazing um, story. Um, and it's not very often I if you've seen my book collection, I have virtually zero books with a white boy as a main character <laughs> at this point, um, because we have choices now where we can finally not force ourselves to imagine a white story as our story, but now we, like, we have our own stories now, which is like, great. So this was um, really wonderful. I loved, um, yeah, I think I said earlier, I love how it really it, it, it aged well. It, it does keep up. It does continue an ongoing uh, conversation about, you know, things we discussed earlier. Um, yeah. And for myself, a few shameless plugs. Oh my gosh. I am too busy to even look at my calendar. I'm scared of my calendar sometimes. Giddy. <laughs> Sorry, y'all. Steen's cat appeared and... <laughs> It's like full face, like tail across the face. <laughs> it's a sign of love. Of course, I'm saying like, mm. really, I can't do a single video chat without her doing that. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's see. So recently, my poem, Babaylan's Lament, was published on Anathema magazine. Check it out. It deals with um, Filipino queerness, Filipino transness, um, when surviving patriarchy and colonization. Um, February 9th, catch me on Instagram. That's Diary of a Firebird. I will be um, co-leading an Instagram live with Thera Pinksy. Um, and they are a Filipino therapist-led coalition. We are discussing Black History Month, but through the lens of Black Filipino solidarity history. So I will be talking a lot about these two communities and how there's been a lot of solidarity work against um, white supremacy. Um, February 16th to 21st, um, if you are in the Bay Area, I will be at the Creating Change Conference. I'll be speaking at the API Institute, um, specifically about police violence towards Asian Americans. Um, and then um, for my organization, the Blasian March, we are having on April 29th, our second annual Blasian March Book Fair. Um, at this event, we are 
trying to build solidarity by sharing free books across the community. So if you're in New York, come on by. We have free books from Black, Asian, and Blasian authors as a way to help us better understand our experiences. Um, if you can't make it, we'll be live streaming the performance hour, our panel that involves Black, Asian, and Blasian writers on how to build solidarity through literary art. And um, since it's February, we are still fundraising to pay for these books and pay for our speakers and our artists. So if you feel like supporting us in this endeavor, please visit us at BlasianMarch.org um, to donate or to share the flyer or to learn more about us. So you can follow me personally at Diary of a Firebird on all platforms. That's also the name of my website where you can find my reading, my writing, all my other things. And of course, uh, Blasian March on all platforms as well. Incredible. You're doing so many great things, Rohan. I'm so impressed. I need a vacation. <laughs> <laughs> uh, lastly, although those of you in this room are welcome to add me on private social media, I do keep my own social media private because I've got kiddos, but you can interact with me on uh, Gray Malkin Lane, uh, Gray Malkin PP, like podcast on Twitter, Gray Malkin underscore Lane on Instagram. We're po posting regular content. Give us a follow. Uh, we have a Patreon channel you should be following as well. There's amazing stuff up there, including an episode that Rohan and I are doing soon on the character Lightbright, uh, which is wonderful. Uh, we will uh, be releasing after this uh, an episode about the first appearance of Sunfire in X-Men number 64. It is a very interesting story in that it literally ties to the uh, atom bomb drops on uh, Japan. <laughs> and there are some interesting character choices but my guest for that show is the uh, the writer Fabian Nicieza, who is super famous in the X-Men world, and I'm so excited to meet him. Uh, the next Patreon show coming up after this is going to be uh, uh, the returning guest, Sean McKeever, and we're going to talk about his original character, Justin Seifert, from the series Sentinel, which is uh, a huge honor for me as well. So, uh, uh, Andrew, Rohan, Steens, Shelby, thank you for being here. Thank you to all the listeners. Uh, we will see you back here next time on Grey Malkin Lane. Thank you for listening to Grey Malkin Lane. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. Grey Malkin Lane is produced and recorded in Salt Lake City, Utah, with music and editing done by my husband, Michael Bell, and promo art done by the incredible Seth Martell. Look for us on Patreon, where we are releasing weekly episodes about obscure characters and facts. Uh, it's a great way to participate with the podcast for only just a couple of dollars a month, and it helps support what we are doing here. Also, the best way you could help Graham Malkin Lane is by sharing and liking and subscribing, but also please leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'll see you back here next time on Graham Malkin Lane.